The scripture reading for this evening is from a passage that I'm sure you're all very familiar with and you probably have memorized already. Deuteronomy chapter 19. That was a joke. I don't expect you to have it memorized. This is a passage that's always uh, fascinated me um, and one that I thought we would explore together this evening about the cities of refuge. It's on page 302 of the Bibles in your pews, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. Actually, you know what? I think we'll read verses 1 through 21, because I referenced that later in the sermon, so might as well. As we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you so very much for the gift of your word. We thank you that you have left us with this piece of work that teaches us about who you are and about who we are in relation to you. Lord, we thank you that you have left us your spirit here on earth so that we may come to know you more through the reading of your word and the revelation set forth there. And Lord, we pray that as we read the scriptures this evening, that you would send your Holy Spirit among us to fill our hearts and our minds, and our eyes, and our ears, so that we may see, and hear, and know, and believe what it is that you would say to us this evening. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 19, starting at verse 1. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge. To one of these cities. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally, without malice or forethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him, even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice or forethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he promised on oath to your ancestors, and gives you the whole land he promised to them, because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk always in obedience to him, then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. But if, out of hate, someone lies in wait 
assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer shall be sent for by one of the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood, so that it may go well with you. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stones set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God has given you. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, our passage this evening comes to us from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is an interesting book, I think, because the whole book takes place in one location, really in just a matter of a couple of days, the book of Deuteronomy takes place. The whole book takes place at the Israelite camp in the wilderness east of the Jordan, just before they enter into the Promised Land. The Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years as a result of their rebellion on the banks of the Jordan River. And now that they've reached the end of their wandering, they set up camp on the east side of the Jordan in the wilderness of Arabah, and Moses begins to teach them his final words to them before he is taken up to God at the end of the book. Moses reminds the Israelites of their history. He reminds them of how God brought them up out of Egypt, about how they rebelled against God on the banks of the Jordan River, just as they were about to enter into the Promised Land. How they've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses teaches them also how they ought to live in the Promised Land once God delivers it into their hands. A lot of the laws in the book of Deuteronomy parallel laws that have already been taught in the books of Exodus and Numbers, uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. But while the laws of the book of Leviticus mostly govern the life of the Israelites as they wander in the wilderness, the laws of the book of Deuteronomy are explicitly for a people with land. The book of Deuteronomy is the law for the people after. God has given them the promised land after they are settled and established. And it even includes provisions for what the role of a king will be and how a king ought to act and how a king ought to govern, even though at this point in their history, when Moses is telling them this, Israel doesn't even have a king and doesn't plan to have one. The passage that we're looking at this evening about the cities of refuge that God commands the Israelites to set up are repeated in every book of the law. 
Leviticus and Numbers both have parallel passages to Deuteronomy 19. And all of them talk about establishing three cities of refuge in Israel once they're established in the Promised Land. And all of them also include the parallel command to expand this to six cities once their borders uh, grow and once they're firmly established. And the purpose of these cities of refuge is to serve as judicial sanctuaries where people were guaranteed due process for a hearing for the crimes that they've been accused of, especially for the crime of manslaughter. And one of the key parts of all of these passages is this occurrence of this avenger of blood. Maybe that stuck out to you uh, in verse 6 here in the passage that we read. The Hebrew word here is goel. And goel in the Hebrew is normally translated throughout the Old Testament as redeemer. But here in these passages, it's translated as avenger. And that's what I'll be focusing on throughout the sermon this evening because I think that Deuteronomy 19 and its parallel passages teach us some very important things about what redemption means. And the reason that I think this is important is because we don't really use the word redemption in our everyday speech anymore other than to talk about coupons, which hardly seems like a metaphor for the gospel. So tonight, we're going to learn about redemption from Deuteronomy 19. But to do that, I think that we first need to understand a little bit what this avenger of blood is and how the ancient Israelite judicial system worked. The kingdom of Israel didn't have a centralized uh, judicial system the way that we do in our country. They had local judges or town elders, as the, uh, the passage today um, names them. Uh, and, and these judges and elders would decide on cases that were brought before them. But for the most part, conflicts between people were settled outside of the legal system. And only when someone felt that their family had been wronged in some way would they take their case before the judges or elders. Ancient Israel, like most ancient civilizations, was an honor-shame society. Reputation and standing of your family in the community was everything. And so a successful family in ancient Israel wasn't necessarily a family that was rich or a family that had a lot of kids. A successful family in ancient Israel was one that was able to secure for itself a good reputation, a reputation for righteousness. And that's why righteousness is such a big deal in the Old Testament, not just because God commands it and it's the Israelites' duty to live righteous lives before God, but because the honor of your family depends on it. Your family's reputation, your family's respect, your family's standing in the community depends on your righteousness. In addition to being an honor-shame society, Israel was also very much a family-based society. And like a lot of societies even today, Israelite society was organized around these extended family units. 
we've kind of broken away from that in North America. And, you know, once, once we become adults, we move out of the house and we uh, establish our own lives. But in ancient Israel, that wasn't the case. People would live, you know, two, three, four, even five generations on a single property, sometimes even in the same house. Businesses were run by families and people went into the trade that they learned from their parents, whether that was farming or carpentry or winemaking or uh, the priesthood. And for the most part, legal disputes between two people were settled by families without ever going to to the judges. The people of Israel were expected to know the law to write it on their hearts. Really, they were expected to memorize the books of the law. This was an expected duty of every Israelite. They would memorize the law, and so whenever there was a legal question, people knew the law, and they could come together as families and make sure that justice was done. Your son stole our donkey, and the law is very clear that your family has to return that donkey and pay us for our troubles. So here you go, we're very sorry, our son will be punished, it won't happen again, have a good day. Don't need to bother the judges. I kind of think about it like, you know, when you get into like a little fender bender and, you know, both of you get out of the car and you're like, hey, let's, let's settle this ourselves. No need to call the police. This is okay. I sort of think of it like that. And really, the only time that people would go to the judges was when they couldn't settle disputes themselves or when families felt that there had been a miscarriage of justice or that they had been wronged or cheated in some way or wrongfully accused. So, Mr. Judge, the Smiths here have accused Johnny of stealing their donkey, but I know that that's not true because Johnny was out of town for the last month on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and the donkey that they say is theirs really belongs to my brother-in-law. It's not even their donkey. And so the judge would rule over this case and would decide whether or not a false accusation had been made and what kind of recompense or penalty was required by the law. As we see here in this passage, in Deuteronomy 19, even the crime of murder was not always brought before the judges. When someone in a person's family was murdered, the, uh, the proverb that we have, uh, the guideline in verse 21, was the rule of law. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And so what would happen was that the family would appoint an avenger of blood, usually the nearest living male relative of the deceased, to go out and to exact vengeance for the wrong that had been done to the family. You killed my father, prepared to die. And that was that. Once the murderer was taken care of, the family's honor was restored, and there was no longer any need for further bloodshed. But this, of course, becomes complicated when you get into situations of manslaughter. Suppose that Jimmy died in an accident while he and Johnny were out chopping wood. And sure, it was Johnny's fault, but Johnny didn't mean to do it. Johnny didn't murder him. It, it, was, it was a terrible, unfortunate accident. Well, the law provides Johnny with recourse to ensure that there's a fair trial, to ensure that his case is heard by a judge. He would make his way as fast as he could, and that's why it says, you know, make sure that there's roads built to these cities because people needed to get there fast. He would make his way as fast as he could to one of the cities of refuge, and he would appeal to the elders of that city for protection. And so when Jimmy's brother came 
around looking for revenge, Johnny would be protected in this city of refuge. And the judges would talk to Jimmy's family and would tell him that it had been a terrible accident. And this is why the cities of refuge were so important for the people in ancient Israel, because it was the only place that they were guaranteed due process of law. Otherwise, it depended on the righteousness of the family that had been wronged. And we all know that when it comes to avenging our own flesh and blood, righteousness is not always the strongest of human virtues. Cities of refuge offered protection for the innocent, but not for the guilty. And so if an actual murderer fled to a city of refuge to try and cheat his way out of his fate, there was no mercy for him. Once the avenger of blood came, if the person was declared guilty by the judges, that person was handed over to the avenger of blood to be killed. The kingdom of Israel was a kingdom of justice, and each person had to pay the penalty for their own crimes. But I want to look at this role of this avenger of blood, because this is an interesting and important word, and it teaches us a lot about the economy of justice in the kingdom of God. The word for avenger, as I said earlier, is goel. And it's a pretty common word in the Old Testament, but it's not normally translated as avenger. It's normally translated as redeemer. And there's two ways that it's mainly used. The first way that it's used is to refer to the kinsman redeemer or the family redeemer. And you might be familiar with this phrase if you've read the book of Ruth. Because in the book of Ruth, Naomi and her husband and her two sons flee from Israel to Midian to escape the famine that's happening in Israel. And while they're there, her two sons marry two Midianite women. And then in an unfortunate turn of fate, Naomi's husband and sons all die. And so Naomi comes back to her hometown of Bethlehem, and she brings with her one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth. And so here you have two widows with no living children who don't have anyone to take care of them. And so the rest of the story concerns itself with Ruth and Naomi trying to find a kinsman redeemer, someone whose responsibility it is to restore their honor, to provide for them, to care for them, to right the wrong that has been done. You see this term pop up a few times in the books of Samuel and Kings when people are murdered or when great wrong is done to a particular family and the kinsman redeemer or the family avenger is sent out to demand justice or to care for their family. And the idea in this family-centered, honor and shame society is that the goel, the family avenger, the kinsman redeemer, is the one who is appointed by the family to protect the family's honor, to protect the family's reputation, to protect the family's righteousness, to make sure that the family's righteousness is not compromised or threatened. The goel makes sure that justice is done, that the family is cared for, and that they're able to live well in the land that God has given them. That's the first way that this word is used, as the kinsman redeemer, as the family avenger. The other way that this word goel 
is used is to refer to God. And references to God as Redeemer occur all through the, uh, the Old Testament. In the, books of, in the book of Exodus and the prophets, the prophetic books, God is referred to as the Redeemer of his people, as the Redeemer of Israel. In Exodus, God refers to himself as the Redeemer of his people. Through Moses, God tells the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. I will avenge you. I will restore your honor with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And in the prophetic books, this language is uh, used of God as well, that God is depicted as the redeemer of his chosen people. And he takes out vengeance against the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Moabites and the Edomites and all of the people who had wronged God's people. And I think it's easy for us to see how this ties in to the story of redemption. The Goel, the family avenger, the kinsman redeemer, was entrusted with protecting the family's honor, with ensuring that justice was done. And God is depicted in these passages as the family avenger for the family that he has created through his covenant, his chosen people. And so in the face of disgrace and in the face of injustice, the people of Israel turn to God as their avenger, as their redeemer. But there's one other way that the Old Testament uses this word to refer to God. And it occurs mostly in the poetic books. In the Psalms, the psalmists regularly refer to God as their redeemer, not in a corporate sense of God uh, redeeming his family of Israel, but in a personal sense, in that in their own personal trials, in their own personal sufferings, God has been, or they know he will be, their redeemer. In the book of Job, even while Job is suffering intense agony in both his body and his spirit, Job holds out hope that his Redeemer will come and set things right, that his family, that his own avenger will come and correct the wrong that has been done to him. And in the book of Genesis, actually the first time that the word Redeemer occurs in the Bible, Jacob, at the end of his life, even though he has suffered what he thought was the loss of his son Joseph, Jacob confesses that God has redeemed him, that God has restored his honor, and he can die in peace. So God acts as the redeemer, not only of his people as a whole, as a collective, but also personally, individually. God serves as the redeemer of those who cling to him in hope and in faith. And like I said earlier, I think that this imagery is important because we don't use the word redeem in our everyday language anymore. Outside of the church, the word redeem is only used about coupons, and that, that, is hardly, that hardly captures the meaning. Um, God doesn't redeem us like coupons. He doesn't turn us in to get something on sale. God redeems us like a family avenger, restoring our honor, restoring us to what he created us to be. Because God has made us, every one of us, in his image. And that image has been tainted by sin. And so because we've been tainted by sin, there are others 
who lay claim to our identity. God has promised to restore us, to redeem us, to avenge us, and in the person of Jesus Christ, he has done precisely that. Because the work of our Lord on the cross did more than simply pay the debt that we owe. The suffering of Christ on the cross was a battle in a war that God has waged since the fall into sin. God has waged this war against sin and death, these great forces in the world that claim us as their own. And in the person of Jesus on the cross, God did battle against the forces of sin and of death and emerged victorious. And so the apostles and the prophets cry out in that great cry of the church, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The truth of the matter is that many of us face injustices and struggles in our own lives. There are people around the world who face persecution for the sake of the gospel. And all of us know the sting of suffering that comes as a general result of sin in the world. But God has promised to right these wrongs. He has won the victory over the forces of evil that claim us as their own, and we do not belong to them. Rather, we belong in body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we put our trust in God because he is our faithful redeemer, the avenger who will restore our honor, the just judge who will do what is right. And in this life, we flee to God as our city of refuge where we know our case will be heard. We offer our lives to him because he is our refuge and our strength. Earlier in the service, we read the last article of the Belgian Confession about the final judgment. And we confessed together that we believe that at the appropriate time, God will come to set all things right as judge of the living and the dead. But we also confessed that those who are faithful to God have nothing to fear from this judgment because it will be our vindication. Far from inspiring fear in us, the promise of the final judgment is, in the words of the Belgian Confession, the, the, the promise of the final judgment is to us a very pleasant and great comfort. Because our total redemption will be accomplished. We will be crowned with glory and honor as our Savior confesses our names before God and his angels and all of our suffering will come to an end and we will be given a glory such as our hearts could never imagine. And so we look forward to that day with great longing, to that day when we will enjoy fully the promises of God, which are ours in Christ Jesus. And until then we pray, together with the church around the world, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. O Lord our God, we cry out to you. 
because the evils of this world are sometimes too much to bear. O Lord our God, we cry out to you, and we know that you hear us, because you are our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trial. O Lord, you are our refuge and our strength, and you are also our Redeemer, who will restore our honor, who will restore us to what we were meant to be when you made us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and establish your kingdom on the earth, we pray.